Hello and welcome to another message from Aldinga Bay Baptist Church. If you'd like to find out more about us or what we believe, please visit aldingabaybaptist.org.au. Okay, we'll pray. Father, thanks for that text. And uh, we just do ask that... uh, that you will speak into our hearts, it's your word, and we come before it with humility. Help us to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are uh, number two in our series from Exodus. And Exodus is a great book, really, to look at, isn't it? Uh, we, we talked about last week's second book of the, of the Bible, which sort of sets the whole story up, which is so important. And it's a book about a lot of things, but it's a book about relationship. And that's important for us to hear. You know, it's a book about relationship, God's relationship with his people. And it's all the way through that theme. Um, And it's just a really good thought, isn't it? God is a God of relationship. Because he doesn't have to be, but God is a God of relationship. And like with any relationship, uh, it's about revealing uh, one person to another person so that they might know them more. And that's what God's like. He's a God of relationship. And we saw that a little bit last week because uh, Exodus 1 opens with oppression, a story of oppression. And, and that story goes like this, that uh, Israel, the nation, has been in Egypt for 400 years. And it, and it goes pretty well for the most part. You know, it's good. They're prosperous. In fact, that's what it wants us to know at the beginning. They went in as 70 people but they became exceedingly strong and they multiplied. And, and so it's gone quite well, the time of Israel in Egypt. But then the winds of opposition blow and there comes a time when the king of Egypt no longer knew Joseph, it says, and he oppressed the people. He was afraid because the Israelites were becoming so strong. So he oppresses them. And he does that, first of all, while making them work in the brickyards and it's terrible and then it gets worse, it gets darker, but he's, he turns to infanticide, killing the male boys when they're born. So it's a terrible time of oppression, and we're supposed to really feel that as we work our way through the first chapter of Exodus. And God's people, I think, make no question about it, no bones of it. They are crying out and they're saying, God, where are you? Why are you letting this happen to us? God, where are you? But then chapter 2 ends with this statement. And the people cried out to God and God heard and God saw and God remembered and God knew. He knew his people. So God's a God of relationship. It's good. That's how last week's sermon ended. And so really the obvious question that comes from that is where we are today is that, well, okay, God's heard, but what's he going to do? You know, uh, What's it going to take to change this situation? That's really where we are. What's it going to take to change the situation? It's a really good question, I think. It's a good, it's a good platform, isn't it, for a sermon because the truth is that we live in a world that needs changing as well. And the truth is that God is a God of relationship for us as well. That's the point, isn't it? You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's all about relationship. Gave his only son to redeem this world. To redeem it. And redeeming it means saving individuals. You know, speaking into lives of men and women, boys and girls. And not only just saving individuals, but blessing entire countries as a result of that. 
And that has been the truth of Christianity, hasn't it? It's just, it's changed the nations over the years because there's been this dignity of humanity that's been spoken of as a result of that. And there's been justice and there's been compassion and there's been humility and that has brought stability into our world. It's been a really good thing. But nonetheless, our world is keen on pushing the other way and going a different direction. And there's so many issues that come as a result of that. And so it's a great question, isn't it? What's it going to... What's it going to take to bring change into this world? I think it's a good question. What's it going to take for God to bring change into this world? And Exodus 3 and 4, today's passage, do speak about that as we look at this conversation, really, between Moses and God. It's kind of like, it's nice. We get to sort of creep into the side. God and Moses are having a chat, more than that. But God is speaking to Moses. Moses is going back to God. And we get to listen to all of this. And so as we come to this conversations, we sort of work our way through the story. To start with, it's a story that is really about interruption, if you like. You know, God interrupts the life of Moses. And that's the story of the burning bush. Moses is out tending his father-in-law's flocks and there's this bush that's on fire. And God is grabbing Moses' attention. I think before we jump into that story too much, to really appreciate the story of the burning bush, you do have to appreciate the backstory. We talked a bit about, last, a bit about it last week, but let me just give you a quick refresh on that because it's so powerful. You know, once you've got that in your mind, you say, oh yeah, that's right. And so that story is that, you know, Moses is the boy that is born, the Hebrew boy that is born in Egypt at the time when the king has said, kill all the Hebrew boys that are born. But he's saved because he's put in this little boat made of reeds and covered with bitumen and he's put in the river and then Pharaoh's daughter comes along and she discovers him and she's so different to her father, remember? You know, he's a hard-hearted man, but she's a woman of compassion. And so Moses gets raised in Egypt. Um, the irony of the story is that the dynasty that tried to kill the Hebrew sons end up, ends up having a Hebrew son as part of the dynasty. It's this great ironic story in that way. And Moses, so he, he grows up in Egypt and Acts actually tells us that Moses grew up with the best education from the Egyptians. And then it tells us that Moses was mighty in word and in deed. So oh, that's good to know, isn't it? Moses was mighty in word and deed. He was the prince of Egypt. I reckon Moses is the sort of guy that you'd look at and you'd say, oh man, I wish I had his life. You know, look at him. He's got everything. He's, you know, he was a Hebrew, but now look at him. He's got the best education. He's mighty in word and deed. And, and Moses thinks that too. You know, he goes out when he's about 40 years old and he says, I'm going to deliver my people. And so by the strength of his arm, he thinks, I am going to put down this regime. I'm going to deliver the Hebrew people. I don't know what his plan is. Probably not very well thought out, but he ends up killing a he an Egyptian, buries him in the sand, and he thinks that his people will rally behind him. But that's just it, they don't. Who made you a prince and a ruler over us, they say. And then he finds out that Pharaoh knows that he's killed an Egyptian and that Pharaoh's out to kill him. And so Moses runs for his life and he ends up in Midian, remember. 
And so this is the story. He's in Midian. And Moses is a man who is somewhat disillusioned, it would seem. Now, he thought he was going to be the deliverer of God's people. But it's all come to nothing. And now he is a shepherd of his father-in-law's flocks in Midian. And you know what? He's content to be that. That's what it actually tells us in chapter 2. And Moses was content to dwell in Midian. So he's a man that thought he would be something, the ruler, you know, a deliverer rather of God's people when he was young. He had such high expectations and others had high expectations of him. And now the edge of his life has been dulled. I think that's the way to see it. You know, that once those high hopes has been dulled and Moses is now just content to be a shepherd of his father's, father-in-law's flocks in Midian. And that's where the story comes because one day Moses is following his flocks and they end up in this place called Mount Horeb. And he goes there and all of a sudden there's the burning bush and God speaks to him out of that bush. And it must have been an amazing time, mustn't it? I mean, goodness me, the bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And Moses goes over there. Let me just read it to you again. Verse four, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said to him, here I am. Then he said, don't come near, take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. You can just imagine that, can't you? It's kind of like, I reckon I was thinking about this. I thought this is like a giant stop sign in Moses' life. He's going in this certain direction, just a shepherd in Midian, and all of a sudden God appears to him. God speaks to him out of a bush. I mean, your life would be changed, wouldn't it? It'd be so deeply impacted. We're not going to live that way anymore, Moses. There is something else for you from now on. I think that's really important to get that, right? Because there's such a strong application there. And it's this, what is is it going to take for God to change this world? Well, I think it's just this. It's going to take God interrupting the life of individuals, just getting their attention. And that's just how it goes, isn't it? See, we're a little bit like Moses. I'm a little bit like Moses. It's very easy to be settled with a life of mediocrity, you know, to just say, I think what I'll do is I'll go to school, I'll get a job, I'll you know, set my face toward getting a career and I'll settle down. Maybe I'll buy a house, maybe I'll have a family, who knows what's going to come my way, but that's just what I'm going to do with my life. That's just what people do do with their lives, isn't it? But then sometimes God steps into somebody's life and he gets their attention and it's called unmerited favour. It's called grace. God says, follow me. And there's a lot of cases like that when you think about it in the Bible, aren't there? Can you think of any cases like that in the Bible where God has just interrupted somebody's life? I mean, Moses, clearly, burning bush, bang, and there's God. 
He's got his attention. But I think it's also like Peter. I think Peter, the great story of Peter in the New Testament, he's a fisherman. He's out all night fishing, can't catch a thing. I mean, how annoying must that be? And then Jesus on the shore, he says, Peter, throw your net on the other side. And he does, and he can't even haul it in. And remember Peter's response? Do you know the story? He comes in and he falls to his face, on his face before Jesus and says, Jesus, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, no, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Well, the story of Paul is the same, you know, just different, but the same here is persecuting the church. And Jesus knocks him off his horse. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Go, I'm going to make you a, a, an apostle to the Gentiles. And his life has changed completely. And here's the thing. I wonder if you've got a story like that in your life. So no doubt it wouldn't be as dramatic as that. But nonetheless, it should still be as impacting. It's called your conversion. It's called your conversion. I know it was really impacting for me. I know that when God called my name, I was resistant. But when, <clears throat> when I bowed the knee, my life was changed forever. Yes, Jesus, I am going to let you be the king of my life. Can you think back to that time? When God grabbed your attention and he said, follow me. Well, maybe, just maybe, he is grabbing your attention at the moment and he's telling you to follow him. What happens as a result of that? Well, I think we see the greatness of God, like Moses sees the holiness of God. You can't even look at him because God is so great. And there's a sense where we see that and we also see the wretchedness of ourselves. Yep, that's how it goes. And why does God do that? Why does he call our name? Why does he do that? Well, because he wants to bring us into a relationship with him. Yes. But it's not just that. He wants us to enter into the very thing that he's doing in this world. And he wants to use us in that as well. That is why we have the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. See, that's what we're called to do. How is God going to change this world? Well, it seems the story of Moses is a bit of a prototype for the way that it works. God interrupts your life. In the direction you're going and the things that you are doing, he steps in and he grabs your attention and he calls you to himself. That's a really important point for us, I think. Because this world needs saving. This world is not going the right way. God loves people. And you've been called to join with him. It's true. But the story goes on. It's not just a story about interruption. It's a story about reluctance as well, isn't it? You know, that's how it goes. It's worth just reading some of these verses again that Lillian has read for us. Get to verse 7. He's called him, the burning bush, and the Lord said to him, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. So God's hearing, you know, just like we saw last week. You go on and he says, I want to, I'm going to bring them to a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land, Canaan. The land of the Canaanites, Hivites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Whew. God says, the cry of these people have gone out to me. 
And then verse 10 is the kicker, all right? So, so far, Moses is probably saying, yep. And then verse 10 is the kicker. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my, you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Wow. I reckon just stop there for a minute. I reckon there's a good sense that when you read that passage, passage there, you might think, oh, wow, you know, what a great opportunity. You know, what a wonderful thing to be called to. Because we kind of, if you're like me anyway, I, I kind of, I do like action. I do like adventurous type stuff, but I'm by far uh, the most, I've flown away from the most adventurous. Uh, there's plenty of people like me and much more, but I reckon we look around this world and we, a lot of us just look at this world and say, oh man, look at these people that have done great things. Look at these people that have risked all, you know, and as a result of risking all, they've achieved something amazing. You take your hat off to them, you see them, you think they're, they're almost, their names are almost kept forever, you know, immortality because people look back at their lives and say, wow, look at those people. How courageous, how brave. You know, it was a little illustration on that. I was, I was watching... Um, a episode of The Crown, much to uh, uh, some people's uh, displeasure, but you know, uh, my kids say, "Dad, are you watching The Crown again?" It's like, "Yeah, I have been." You know, and you, maybe you think, "Really, Andrew?" But I, I, I've watched a few episodes of The Crown on Netflix, and and it's the story of the royals. And uh, this particular episode was to do with the lunar landing. Okay, and uh, it was you know, here's the the royal family, and Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and uh, Michael Collins have you know done this first lunar landing. And the Duke of Edinburgh, you know, he's not the most chirpy person, apparently. And uh, he, was, he was just a little ticked off. Uh, not about that. He was just ticked off with life. He was ticked off with just how mediocre people are, you know. Oh, mediocre, you know, just um, what do they do with themselves? And he was probably a bit ticked off with himself as well, just mediocre life, settling for that. And he was, his idea was, look at these three men. Look at these three young men that have put themselves on the end of a rocket, and they've risked absolutely everything and they've landed on the moon. Wow, that's changed humanity. That has changed this world. So the story goes. And, and uh, I think, yeah, well, that's plausible because we do applaud, don't we, people that risk all and achieve something amazing. But there's a problem with that. To risk all and to achieve something amazing means that you have to risk all. And that's when we get a little bit nervous right there, isn't it? So I don't know if I really want to risk all. You know, I, I like that idea of doing something amazing, but I don't know if I really want to risk all. And, and that's exactly Moses' problem here. He's reluctant. Moses is a man who is afraid. Moses is a man who does not believe in himself. Moses is a man who has had the edge dulled in his life. Once the prince of Egypt, he would have taken on the world. But now reality has set in. And he does not believe that he is anybody that God can use. He's afraid. And that point is the point that is made in abundance for the rest of this passage, chapter 3 and chapter 4. It just goes on and we, we get to hear this narrative which gets rolled out between God, this conversation that gets rolled out between God and Moses. And there's so much detail in it. We haven't got time to spend on all that detail, but we want to see it. 
We're supposed to see it. That's the point of these verses. Listen to what's going on. Moses has got four objections. And the first objection, which comes out straight after this, God says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And Moses' response in verse 11 is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I, God, that I should go? And God says, oh, but Moses, I'll be with you. And this should be a sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. And that's exactly how it goes. So it's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? Moses says, who am I? And it was interesting. Isn't it interesting what God says? This is really important because it's not how we do it in this world. God doesn't say, oh, Moses, you'll be all right. Look at you. You know, you, you were the best man in Egypt. You're the prince of Egypt. Look at all I've done for you. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say you can do anything. No, he doesn't say that. Just put your mind to it. The world is your oyster. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't pump up his tires at all, actually. He just says, I will be with you. I will be with you. That's what he says. And then he says, the sign is going to be, which is really a promise, is that I'm telling you this, and one day you're going to come back to this mountain and you're going to have a couple of million people with you, the Israelites. And so it turns out Mount Horeb, where he's talking to God right now, is actually Mount Sinai, where he's going to be when you get to Exodus chapter 19. Wow. I will be with you. Doesn't pump up his tires. But Moses still isn't done. He's still got three more objections. And the second one's a really important one. And it's an interesting one too. Do you notice what Moses said? Do you remember? He says, but if I go to them and say, the God of my fathers has sent me to you, they're going to say, well, what is his name? I don't know. I, first time I read that through, I thought, why would they say that? That wouldn't be the question that I would ask. Oh, what's his name? You know, I don't think that would be the first question that would roll off, you know, my lips. It wouldn't be the first thought that would pop into my head. What's his name? You know, you sort of got this picture of uh, them standing behind closed doors and Moses comes and God sent me to you. And they're kind of like, all right, boys, here's the password. What's his name? It's Yahweh. Okay, let him in. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of like that, but it's not like that at all, is it? I mean, it's, 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 that's the picture that comes to my mind anyway. What is his name? It's like a password. No, it's not a password. If what it is is this. Moses envisages what actually does happen, and that is that they know that the king of Egypt is not going to just let them go because Moses has rocked up. They're going to take some convincing. They're going to need some confidence. That's what this is about. And so he says, what is, they're going to say, what is his name? They're talking more about identity because that's how names worked in the ancient world. What's your name? My name's Andrew. Well, what does that mean? You don't even think that. But in the ancient world, they did think that. You know, what does his name mean? And so God says, tell them that I am that I am has sent you to them. Tell them that my name is I am. At first, it sounds a bit evasive, doesn't it? I mean, the Hebrew I am that I am actually is I be that I be. It's, it's just kind of just I am. You know, it sounds a bit evasive. It's almost like God saying to Moses, well, don't ask me my name. I just, it is what it is. You know, I be what I be. I am that I am. But it's not evasive. It's actually filled with 
meaning. It's exactly what they need to hear. See, that's just it. What does it mean, I am that I am? See, when I, when I introduce myself, you know, I might say, hi, I'm Andrew and I'm a pastor. You know, it's kind of like, that's what I do. That's how we do. That's what we do a lot of time, isn't it? We sort of we identify with what we do. And so God could have said to Moses, go to the Jews and say, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has sent me, the God of creation. Well, that would be good. I mean, that's pretty powerful. The God of creation has sent me to you. Wow, really? He could have done that, but he doesn't, does he? He actually goes beyond that. Because the truth is that before the world was created and before the universe was created, God was. So he doesn't get his identity from what he has done because the universe is not God's environment. God is the universe's environment. That's how big God is. I am that I am. It's the idea that God is self-existent. He depends on nothing. He depends on absolutely nobody. Wow, that's, that is a big thought, isn't it? He is all-knowing. He doesn't answer to anybody. Nobody can pull him up. Nobody can say, I don't think that's a good idea. That's just what he is. I am that I am. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-wise. I am that I am. And that seems to be the idea that's coming through this. I, I think that's what we're supposed to see. Because as it goes on, God then says to Moses, tell them that the God of Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you and tell them that he's heard your cry. And then he says, and tell them that he's going to deliver you, but it's going to be hard. Pharaoh is going to object, but by my power, I'm going to deliver you with great victory. So the idea is that I am nobody is going to get in my way. I am who I am. So that's a really interesting thought, isn't it? It's a powerful thought because we are timid people and we are people that don't feel like we're up to it and God has spoken into our lives but we don't feel like we're up to it and this is a really important point. But it's also important to understand that, that Moses' objections don't quite stop there. I mean, you'd think it'd be nice, there's a good end to the story, move on now, but it doesn't quite go like, he's still got a couple more objections. But it's also really interesting that God is so patient with him. God is really patient with Moses. Get that idea, don't you? Because Moses comes back another time, another couple of times, he says, well, what about if they don't believe me? Or he goes and says, but I'm not the most eloquent. And God responds to that with more power. You know, there's, you get to chapter four and it's take your staff, throw it on the ground and it will turn into a serpent. Moses runs away. He says, no, grab it by the tail. And it turns back into a staff. Then there's the leprous hand Put it in your coat, take it out, it's leprous, put it back in, it's clean. And then God tells Moses in chapter four also that you'll take some water from the Nile and that'll turn into blood. See, all those things we'll unpack a little bit more in another sermon. But those things are saying that God is more powerful than Egypt. That's what they're saying. God is more powerful than Egypt. And then there's the eloquence thing, but I'm not the most eloquent, which is kind of crazy, isn't it? Because I thought we read before in Acts that he was mighty in word and in deed. But that was a long time ago. And God says, well, I will be your mouth, Moses. I will speak. 
I will be your mouth. What are we supposed to learn from all this? Okay, this is the four objections in God's response. What are we supposed to learn from all of this? Well, we're supposed to learn this, and I, I really want us to hear it. I want us to hear it because this is what God is saying to us as well. For God to change the world, he is going to enlist individuals. And for those individuals to really step up, they need to know something about who God is. And they need to know something about spending time in his presence. And that's exactly the same for you as well. You know, for, for you, with all of your insecurities and all of your failings and all that might be going on in your life, it's not a magic wand, this, but it's a very important part of the puzzle. It's a little bit scary going into this world. God calls people to go to Peru, apparently. And it means selling everything, you know, and moving away to another country. And you don't, you've never even been there. But maybe God's saying something like that to you as well. We shouldn't just think it's just Thomas and Joe. We should think, well, maybe God could be asking me to do something like that. Or maybe God's asking me to leave my vocation and go to Bible college and get a theological degree and go into the ministry. And it's going to be probably pretty tough because there's a pastor drought at the moment. And there's a reason, one of the reasons why there's a pastor drought is because ministry is pretty tough. People have cottoned on to that. Oh, that's hard. You might do something else. You know, but maybe God is calling you and you're a bit reluctant. Or maybe it's just speaking out. Maybe it's just living for him in your workplace, in your university, at home. It's just, I don't know. But this is what happens, isn't it, is we get scared. We become, we get reluctant. And what God is saying to us is hear who I am. Understand that I am patient as well and I will work with you through this. I read a really good quote uh, in a commentary that I'm really enjoying at the moment. Alex Mottier, he said this, he said, what is it? then, that leads to true, true Christian service. What we have here is not the whole answer because there's still the vital ingredient which will emerge in chapters five to, five to seven. Nevertheless, Exodus is very clear about where true Christian service begins. It begins in the presence of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh, but before he sent him out, he brought him in and let him stand in his presence and commune with his God. The biblical preparation for service is always that we be found in the presence of the Lord. That is it, in the presence of the Lord. We need to be people, do we say, read your Bibles, come to church, join a small group. Make it meaningful. We need to spend time in the presence of God because you're going to spend time in the presence of something, aren't you? And that's going to control you. But we need to spend time in the presence of God. Understand who he is. Let that wash over us. And go to him with our objections and our fears and know that he is listening. And talk to him. And hear his answers from his word. Yeah, it's, a, it's a beautiful thought because God is in the business of changing this world. What's it going to take? This world needs to be changed takes those things. One final thing in this story. There's a lot of detail 
just to really summarize, the last part of the story is really about obedience and blessing, if you like. So Moses, he's still reluctant uh, and now God's getting angry with him. And so it finishes this way after God telling him all of this, but he said, oh Lord, please send somebody else. Lord, please just send somebody else. Then the Lord's anger, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And so there's a whole story there where we introduce Aaron to the story and we'll see a lot more about him. But it's pretty cool. Moses is afraid, but God is still gentle with him. He's angry, but he's still gentle. He still makes a way. He says, well, actually, truthfully, Moses, I knew you were going to go here. And I've already dispatched Aaron from Egypt and you're going to meet with him right here on Horeb in this place. And then the two of you are going to go together to the Israelites and Aaron will be your mouthpiece and he will speak and you'll do the signs that I've shown you and you'll convince the people of Israel that God is in this. And notice how the chapter ends. This is really important for us. This is the thing I want you to see as we bring it to a close. Notice how the chapter ends. So Moses and Aaron go, they do the signs, they tell the people. And verse 31 says this, and the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. And so they bowed and they worshipped. That is really cool because that actually goes full circle if you remember the story. Because in chapter two, what happens? The end of chapter two, the last few verses there, the people cried out to God because they were hopeless. They found they could see no way out of all of this. But chapter two says that, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. It's kind of, it's maybe a little bit geeky, but there's four verbs. God saw, he heard, he remembered, and he knew. And then the last verse in this chapter is four verbs. The people believed, they heard, they bowed, and they worshipped. It's kind of, it's the dawn of change, isn't it? The dawn of hope. All of a sudden, everything was so dark. Where is God? And God brings about a dawn of hope, a dawn of change. How, does, how do they get that? How do they go from hopelessness to hope? It's because God interrupts the life of an individual and then God reveals himself to him and spends time with him. And as a result of that, Moses goes. He's still reluctant. He's still afraid. But God is using him to bring about change. And I think that's really important for us because we can give up. We're not supposed to give up. This world is in need. It is hopeless. It doesn't have direction. It's pushing the other way. What's it going to take to change that? Well, it's the answer's been given, hasn't it? It's you. And it's you knowing God and hearing who he is and letting that change your life. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for 
a beautiful text, a beautiful story, but more than a story, something that is there recorded for history to change us and to impact us and to help us to see who you are. We thank you that you love this world and you want to see it redeemed and you're calling us to join with you to do that, as scary as it may be. But please help us to love you, to know you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.